Destroyers, how you going? This is Create and Destroy. I'm Jordan Jan, and today you're listening to a super special episode of Create and Destroy. We've got our second guest ever on the show, a very special, close friend of mine, mentor and business partner, Gus Bell Bonton. For those of you who don't know, Gus is the former executive director and CTO of Lonely Planet, and he led one of the most loved and recognizable brands in the world through the significant business transformation, which was the dot-com boom and the the battle of the internet. Um, since then, Gus is a founder, investor, and advisor, as well as one of the directors at Rochambeau and entrepreneur in resident at Victoria University as well. Just um, a couple things he's balancing. Uh, in this episode, we talk about a whole bunch of things from mindset, uh, from where he came from all the way through to exercise and even a little bit about the tennis. So without any more fluffing about, let's get into it. Like all episodes of Create and Destroy, this episode is brought to you by Rochambeau Studios. If you want to know more about what we do, just head over to rochambeau.co. So how's that sound in your ears? Yeah, can you? Perfect. I think this sounds good. Cool. Dude, we're live. We're recording. Nice. How are you? Good. This is good. This has been a long time coming. We've known each other. Not very long. When you think about it. No, actually. It's no, so no. funny. The last episode with Andrew, we're like, geez, man, this has been a while since we've been in the same place. And I realized that the last time that we were properly hanging out was the time that we met. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was what, four years ago. Something like that. Yeah. Like Andrew and I've caught up heaps. But, yeah, um, but- yeah, not, not just to shoot the shit, you know. So for everybody listening, got a uh, guest in today. We've got a very special person, Gus Belbonton, and I'm, I don't think I'm going to do any justice introducing him. And I think um, it's part of Gus's job to introduce himself. So uh, I do often do it. You do. How do you do it? Do you have a go-to? Like I've asked Andrew how he introduces himself. Well, the reason I only because I've, you know, if I think about the last... Three and a half, four years, I've done it, I think over 300 times, 300, yeah. you know, and, and I kind of follow a bit of a pattern to it. So I think now when I need to shake hands with someone and, and, and give a quick intro on myself, I tend to fall directly into that pattern. Not that I think is the best. I think is the one that I'm the most used to, I guess. Subconscious. It's so I, can, I can just give you that one if you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you? So if you, well, s- yeah. Basically, you know, originally from the Argentinian Patagonia, which is the bottom bit at the bottom of South America, grew up in a very small town um, in the desert near the beach. And um, and I always say a typical kind of small place mindset. I grew up in a place where, you know, your dreams are already predefined for you, you know, where not just your family, but the context in which you exist has already a life planned out for you, mm. you know, which is right. You know, if you grew up in this town, here's what's going to happen. You're going to you know, go to uni for five years, you're going to come back, you're going to work in government and you're going to do this and you're going to buy a house somewhere in the vicinity of these two or three kilometer radios. Um, mm. You're going to have kids, you're going to find one of the local girls or boys and yeah. that's it, right? That's it. And when I was eight, I kind of went, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. I want to do something else. And it was a bit of a shock to the family. By the time I was 13, I also renounced my religion, which was also a bit of a shock too, but we can do it That's not normally part of my intro. Anyway. Long story short, I guess I, at eight, I said I wanted to travel the world. By 17, coming from very humble beginnings, um, I managed to save enough money by selling cakes, which was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. And by 17, I landed in Byron Bay, out of all places, uh, in Australia. And gosh, I mean, I didn't know much about Australia at that point in time, but in hindsight, now thinking about it, gosh, I could have landed in so many shit places in Australia. Dude, big I'm time. so lucky I landed in Byron Bay. <laughs> I mean, um, I remember I had a, an exchange student friend that landed in a Mayanizer. And um, I mean, yeah, cool place to visit, but oh man, like the, the, the experiences that I had of Australia compared to the experiences he had of Australia were literally, you know, polars apart. Well, you landed into a postcard. Yeah, yeah, insane. Yeah. Like, and that's exactly what it felt to me like. I remember sitting there looking at, and coming from the desert, I remember one of our first observations was, oh my God, there's so many plants. How can, how can uh-huh. there be so many plants on earth? Like yeah. I grew up in a place where there wasn't that much plants, you know? So seeing so much green and so many trees and so many animals, I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, anyway, landed in Australia. I spent 12 months in, you know, in, 
in, in high school, I guess. I always say that I met a gorgeous girl halfway through that uh, at school. I was 17 and I, I was so madly, you know, fascinated by this girl that two weeks after I met her, I asked her to get married with me. As you do. And she said no. And I was very, uh, <laughs> and I was shocked because I couldn't understand why. You know, I thought, yeah. you know, I always say, check this out. I mean, seriously, can you say no to this? <laughs> I bet you can see me on the podcast, but anyway. Yeah. Um, not that I look any, anything, but for some reason, as a 17 year old man, I thought, God, oh, tanned Argentinian. I, I, I thought I had something to dance. I thought I had something to offer, you know, <laughs> curly hair and all. And um, anyway, she reminded me that um, I was trying to get a visa to Australia, and that's the only reason why I was trying to get married. <laughs> of course, I wasn't, but anyway. Yeah, uh, and she had a boyfriend. I think a real boyfriend, and there was a whole story behind that too. But uh, you know, one thing led to the other. I ended up back in Argentina. I ended up traveling, hitchhiking for quite a while. Learned my lessons of of hitchhiking, and which I then applied to business actually later, which was amazing. And then um, yeah, I went to uni, dropped out of uni, wasn't for me, didn't work. Um, went back to entrepreneurial roots. You know, started a little business on advertising. Um, you know, became an English teacher just to save money, did everything I could. And once I put enough, you know, cash aside, I got myself back on a plane and came back to Australia chasing the dream, you know, my dream woman, my dream girl. And, uh, yeah, I started very slowly. I set up a tennis school the first up. I picked macadamia nuts. I worked in farms. I did everything I had to do until a job appears at Lonely Planner. And then my kind of professional career started at that point in time. How old were you when you started at Lonely Planet? In the early 20s. I probably need to do the calculations, but I was 20. Must have been early. One. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Something like that. And so then you were there for the next 15 years? 15 years. And went from, what was the first job at Lonely Planet? It was called Cartographer uh, Designer. So, so the job was basically to draw maps. Mm. In uh, Back then it was AutoCAD 14. Mm-hmm. I don't even know Which what it's I up to now. Taught my, I don't even know, but I taught myself how to use that. Uh, my sister gave me a bit of a hand and, you know, I picked up a computer and started playing around with it. And it just coincided that that the same system, you know, software was used for, you know, drawing houses and plans and so on, which mm-hmm. my sister is an architect, my dad as well. Um, but also it was used to draw maps. Sneak, sneaking away, lunch break. Dad, dad, <laughs> how do I undo it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I deleted the whole... Um, so I did that at the beginning and then, but that's all, that only lasted about a year. Yeah. And it was called designer as well because on top of maps, you would do the layout design of the, of the guide, the actual mm. layout of the book, uh, which was done at that point in time, I think in something called Quark, Quark Express. I can't remember exactly. Anyway, or InDesign. Mm. So we did that, the layout, and we would select all the photography. We would, uh, and the only tiny perk as a designer that you had, which wasn't, uh, templated was that you could draw uh, what it was called the chapter ends. So you could literally grab pen and paper and draw whatever chapter end you wanted. So I've managed to draw in the one year that I did that job, I think two chapter ends for Greece and Stockholm. Oh, sweet. And, uh, and the other actually I was looking at the guides and I picked them up and I went, I drew that. That's right. <laughs> That's oh, mine. I was really happy. But the buzz at that point in time, I remember when I was young and being a traveler, you know, Lonely Planet was a big brand. So yeah. to me, Getting a job at Lonely Planet, I remember the buzz of getting the email address that said gas at lonelyplanet.com. It yeah. was like. Oh, I bet. Ah, it was insane. I, I, in my mind, I could not even comprehend. Also, a full time job. I've never had a full time job until that point in time. Mm-hmm. So I remember every fortnight, money going into the account. It was like. Shit. Wow. You know, this is like. <laughs> this, fuck, this, this is, is like being an adult. This is legal. I know. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I don't have to. Like hustle for this money? This yeah. money just appears? Yeah. It was insane. I returned up to Melbourne. It was, uh, I had a, a little room. I didn't even rent a house. I had an apartment. It was a room. I had no fridge. So I had an esky. That was just uh, near here, right? Yeah. yeah. It was on Hoddle, Hoddle Street. Street. Yeah. I had a, a, an esky, uh, a mattress and a bike. <laughs> and that's the three things that I bought. And that's the only thing I could. And the office at Lonely Planet at the time was Richmond. In, in Hawthorne. No, Hawthorne. Yeah, before it wasn't the very first one, but it was one of the original ones. Yeah, so. Before it moved over to, to Footscray. So I, yeah, I was in, so yeah, I did a year of that cartography designer job. We were in Hawthorne office and then basically at the end of that year, we moved into Footscray and there was a lot of restructuring in the company and I got fired. So, <laughs> really? Yeah, I got fired. I didn't know that. Yeah, I lost my job. I went on my honeymoon and came back from my honeymoon and I had no job. 
No more fortnight, my, my, no fortnightly my, deposits. My, no, my <laughs> boss rang me and said, um, we got some news. So that was my first experience of corporate life as well. It was like, here's a job that you get money, you know, every fortnight mm. to, oh, you have no more job anymore. And it was really funny because at that point in time, it kind of dawned on me a little bit that this um, uh, concept that people have of security in a job, I never understood. I was like, mm. no, it's the opposite. Like security is when you, you know, it's on you to make your own money. Yeah depending on mm. someone is actually less secure, yeah. even though people tend to think the other way around. They totally. think that a full-time job is secure and an entrepreneur is insecure. And I'm like going, well, there's risk in entrepreneurship, but- But you're driving. It's on you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. the other one is not on you at all. You're at the mercy of, but another point in time was Junior Burger, right? So you can imagine mm. that yeah. I, 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 the restructure happens, you're fired. Oh, what happened? Too hard, son, don't worry. Don't, yeah, <laughs> see you later. See yeah. you later, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, you know, there's, there's no time in that for, but my chapter and it was so sick. Yeah, like, yeah, it was no. so good. Like, fuck off. Yeah, listen, there's, there's shit. <laughs> you know, there's 300 more, people. Yeah, yeah. Chill. And yeah. there's, you know, boards and these and that mm. and markets. And at that point in time, I didn't know anything about any of that. So um, long ago at that point in time was one of the, I think it was his second one. He had a few years earlier a, a, cl- a cash flow situation. So mm. there was a fair bit of stuff. At that point in time, the restructure wasn't necessarily based on, financial problems. It was more on just structural issues. They wanted to start getting more aligned with the digital world and so on. So it was in the early 2000s. This would have been early, ta- yeah. So yeah, early this would have been right when, you know, TripAdvisor and all those sorts of guys were just starting, just yeah, coming Yeah, well, up. Expedia was just Expedia, spinning yeah. off. So now TripAdvisor was, yeah, in late 90s, you know, Expedia was the spin-off of Microsoft, mm. um, which was... Uh, amazing. I mean, how those guys jump. Well, in fact, Bill Gates was involved in that. So yeah. Bill Gates and a team at Microsoft. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, it was kind of like welcome to the world of corporate. And, and because I was so young, I was so naive. I didn't comprehend the safety of, of corporate work. Mm. Um, when, when I lost my, I still remember this, you know, insane. When my boss, when I lost the job, right. And my boss told me and told all of us in that team, a lot of my mates at that point in time were really disappointed, really upset with with our boss, right? Mm. Um, and I couldn't understand why they were so upset with him because I kept saying, but two months ago, he was like your best friend. We're playing indoor soccer together. Yeah. And how can you hate him now? Like, I don't hate him. He's just doing his job. Like, I don't know. Yeah, and realizing that he's just, there's like, someone above him. Yeah, and, and above whatever, him and, and something, something, and, and whatever. Yeah, sure. All I could think of was, not that I lost my job, all I could think of was the second bit of the conversation, which was, We've restructured and there's a bunch of openings for new jobs. Yeah. If you want to apply to another one, you mm. know, it's part of your legal right. You're more than welcome to apply. Yada, yada, yada. So I remember all the other guys being super upset, you know, joining unions and talking about the union and complaining and this and whatever my job mm. and whatever. Me going, dude, fuck, there's like new jobs. Like, let's go for them. Yeah. See what we can get, right? Yeah, we must have a leg up because we know the organization. But, we know. Like, how know. epic. So I remember that. Um, yeah, like I was super young and I remember I went through the list of all the available jobs um, and I picked the highest job I thought I could have a crack at, yeah. not because <laughs> I thought I liked it or anything. I just thought, what's the highest paying ranking job that I could probably have a crack and still get away with it? So I picked that one. It was called Production Scheduling Manager. Oh, okay. Scheduling, right? Planning, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Not my 14 anyway, <laughs> shape or form, but I thought, highest paying job, I give it a crack. And I remember that I did exactly that. I had the inside information. So I yeah. knew that no one outside could compete with me because mm. I had all the, you know, all the intel. Yeah. Um, and then I started doing what naturally came to me, which was I started talking to everyone about that job and what they thought of that job. I started saying, what, what's in your mind? What do you think is going to happen? By the time I went to the interview, I had the job already. Yeah. Because I've already spoken to everyone. I've already given my thoughts. They're giving their thoughts. Mm. And we kind of co-designed it. So by the time yeah. I got the job, and within a year, the job was changed because I redesigned it. And I think from then on, for 15 years, except for the very last job and that those very two first jobs, every other job I had on the planet I designed. Really? Yeah, wow. I, I made up. Because I would, there was a gap in the business and it needed what, it what about this? What about that? We should you know, we need, we need this now. And it's kind of like, again, another perverse, this is, you know, yeah, there's, there's two bits of wisdom there. One is the perverse nature of thinking that, you know, you know, a corporate job is safe when in fact it's not. And the other one is um, the the perverse thing. Fuck, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> um, I, this happens to me all my time. You know? um, the second thing was how your brain... 
things ah that trying to keep your job like this and this is the thing that I learned early on if I wanted to protect that production scheduling manager role I could have right but my quest was the quicker I get rid of it the the more relevant I become to the business as as opposed to Keeping the old job, which would constrain it and Correct. and keep the business from growing. So it's weird, right? So yeah. I knew this instinctively all along. Where most people go, oh, protect the job, protect the job. I was going like, no, get rid of the job, and in uh, and in the process, get rid of me. Yeah, that's cool because I've designed this other one, and yeah. then he's like, get rid of that one because I now design this other one. And because as we see that a lot of the times when we're, yeah. we're working, because that would have been the same thing. I guarantee there would have been some sort of production scheduling software that came out Correct. that you would have flagged this, put it in there, so-and-so got an alert, their shit's due. And you, you could have gone, that's never going to work. That's horrible shit piece of advice. You need shit me piece. because I'm the, yeah. Yeah, but how I can walk over there and talk to Mary and make sure that it works up to standard. The software can't. Yeah. Instead of going, hang on, this software could probably free up my time to make sure that the quality of the product is better rather than is this coming in on time by 5 p.m. Tuesday afternoon for print or whatever. So there's another bit, you know, it's, you know, the quicker you make yourself irrelevant, mm. the more relevance you'll have. It's, it, yeah. it's weird, right? Yeah, because it goes against... I, I, I think it goes against that protective nature that we try to protect our turf. And that would have been the same. Well, that's a growth mindset compared to a fixed mindset, yeah. isn't it? Because if you're just going, no, 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 hang on. I'm going to be the most badass production scheduler ever. Yeah. No one's taking this this job from me. Well, then the business probably isn't going to grow because yeah. there's definitely going to be better things out there that can help you do that process. Yeah. And, and also you don't grow. I mean, it's a great. thing. And it's boring. So that was, yeah, that was quick. And then once that changed, then I, I went through planning and design and internal consulting and, yeah, the whole thing kind of shifted from there. And then fast forward 15 years, you're running the show. Or yeah, later on, yeah, it was, a, I mean, just before that I ended up falling into innovation. The company started developing innovation capabilities. Mm. There were some really amazing people involved in the company that, that, kind of started putting the first cornerstones of innovation and I joined that kind of foundational team in a way with, with those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they became mentors to me earlier on. They, they were, you know, um, older than me, but very experienced in, in kind of um, another level of entrepreneurship that I wasn't, you know, exposed to, like big deals and mm. Asia Pacific and, you know, Europe, kind of deal between these three big brands, kind of that stuff. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, this whole, is another whole new whole level. Shit. This is epic. So I started getting involved with that and we started getting far deeper into technology. So mm. that was my first kind of interaction with developing our own technology, our own softwares. And so a lot of those deals would have been all about taking, I guess, data and the content created from Lonely Planet Machine and distributing them across other platforms in different devices. So we're talking Correct. the Googles, the Facebooks, the, that sort of. Because the world started, you know, fragmenting into yeah. different ways of reaching audiences. You know, yeah. back in the day, you reach the audience by a book, mm. by a newspaper, by yeah. the television, by the radio. Yeah. And I guess that's a yeah, start dis- running out, right? There was, there channels was nothing were literally, else. Yeah, yeah, it was. So, audio. Correct. And if you dominated visual. one of those channels, you know, if you knew how to dominate one of those, like mm. in the book business, if you dominated shelves in bookshops, mm. you owned it. Mm. In, you know, movies, if you dominated cinemas, you owned it. Yeah. Where now you can't own shit. It's so fragmented and distributed that you cannot have the monopoly, the ownership of anything because it's almost like a, you know, by the time you catch one piece, it goes somewhere else. Hey, I wondered, you just said that about dominating physical space. Yeah. And I started just thinking about... um you know, like fast consumer product products like Coca-Cola. Yeah. It kind of hasn't hit, you know, fast food as and just packaged food as much as it has content. Because if you still look at, if you go to the Servo or any uh, 7-Eleven, they're still battling for shelf space. No, no, correct. Huh. Think about it. The day the 3D printing of our own food Comes, Let's say yeah. that your favorite chocolate you can 3D print at home. That'd be insane. That's it, gone. I mean, See later, all of yeah. a sudden trying to own that shelf in the 7-Eleven or in the supermarket yeah. becomes a useless exercise. And that's the well, thing. The, the supermarket becomes uh, a useless correct. space. And think about it, for for companies that are attached to that physical distribution, if you own that physical, that, that point of interaction with the customer, mm. you own the market. Simple as that. If yeah. I own that shelf at eyesight, you know, I hide, you know, two or three meters of it, 
you on you, the market you win. because you win. And so then first step one, now I'm just thinking out loud, step one of that, I guess, disruption has been food delivery services because now rather than going to the shop to then be bombarded by a brand you to start. then buy whatever meal or drink, now it's in your pocket and you're saying, oh, I can actually get that organic hand squeeze kombucha from that corner store rather than going and being bombarded with, you know, yeah. a big brand. Yeah. Huh. When that starts happening, I think it'll it'll disrupt. Well, I mean, Amazon has done the, yeah. one of the biggest jobs of doing that, but I think it'll come to a point where we can start, you know, literally making a favorite cookie at home. Yeah. And taste exactly the same in exactly the same ingredients and whatever, even healthier, mm. let's say. And, yeah. and that's the end of that. I don't know. But um, yeah, so that was a, a big piece, you know, coming to that. And then, so that was first innovation at London Plan and then eventually I ended up in the executive. So, so that there were 15 years, you got to essentially the finish line, yep. essentially, of what, of climbing. Um, I guess essentially climbing a ladder to yeah. to a certain point. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of um, converging with when we met. Yeah. It wasn't that far far away from it. Um, and so then to, to, I guess, close the loop, Gus had just decided that uh, living in Tennessee at the time, yeah. um, Lonely Planet had, had, done, had changed a whole bunch of things. And I, I like that you always say that when you're putting Naylan to bed, your oldest son, via Skype was probably that inflection point of going, oh, fuck, what's this? Yeah, there was a number of things that, that joined up together. I mean, there was, you know, I can't deny there were obviously as well disagreements with the shareholder and there were things that were not necessarily going the way that I was necessarily wanted them to go and I was at peace and morally okay with going. And, you know, mm. and so I decided that that wasn't a good time. But also another big contributor was we were in a fair bit of discomfort living in a, in a part of the world that, didn't quite suit our family needs and we were a bit, mm. you know, disjointed. And yeah, and, and um, one day I put, in fact, it wasn't Nalan, it was actually Bastion. It was, oh, was it? My little one. Oh. Yeah, because Nalan was already eight or nine or 10 by then. No, huh. yeah, eight by then. Yeah. Bastion was two, huh. I think, one and a half. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I read him a story. I was in Beijing. Yeah. And I read him a story over Skype. And yeah. I remember I hang up and I was on my own in the, in the hotel going, fuck am I doing? I mean, how is this? Yeah. How is this climbing anything? Yeah. Well, I got to the top of what? The top of this shit? Like, seriously? Fuck. Yeah. Is this all I've been trying to do? Because I've had it. I mean, I was looking at my career plans the other day, which I need to show you, actually. Mm. Um, like seven, eight years ago, I remember I, I've got all the, I sat down and planned my entire career, right? What I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, and in there, there was lead a large group of people towards success, you know, things like that. You yeah. know, there were words along the lines of that. Mm. So getting to the top of, a large corporation, a big brand worldwide and leading it to me felt that I've succeeded. Mm. But all of a sudden, you know, a lot of other things in my life were not succeeding at all. And, and this is where, you know, yeah. I think. And that balance yeah. is, and especially when you're working at that scale. And um, I think from, from us hanging out and working together and doing a bunch of travel over the last couple of years, I've, kind of notice that as well like when you're in the the airport and we're going somewhere for you know a keynote of yours or a workshop or something like that and you start looking around and you've got you know the you can pick the the big executives a mile away yeah. none of them look that happy no it's very it's, rarely you, you find one that's having a good time I'm not saying that they don't yeah. but there's definitely good times but it's at the cost of something else yeah it's going to be very very tricky to be running, especially if it's not your business as well. Hmm. If it's you're running in an organization which is almost owned by the people, when the brand becomes so big, like Lonely Planet, hmm. I think the feeling, and this is only as an outsider looking in, is that it's not really owned by anyone as opposed of, of it's more an a, accumulation of everybody together and it's just one person at the front trying to trying to steer the ship or in the middle or the back, wherever, whatever, yeah, you, yeah. however you want to do it. But um, yeah, noticing that that balance between lifestyle and business is the higher up a ladder you get, the, there's definitely, there's more uh, stresses involved. Yeah. And, and it becomes insane because you also, you know, the whole concept of you can't please everyone, no, you know, yeah. you can't please everyone. You have to make decisions because you've signed that line. You have to make decisions on behalf of the shareholder or, you know, mm. uh, or the safety or of the actual legal structure of the company. You have to ensure that liquidity exists. You, you mm. know, there's a lot of bunch of legal stuff that you have to do that sometimes is at odds with, with perhaps what you would have decided 
if you were just having a beer with a mate in the bar to barbecue, yeah. if you didn't have any of those constraints, you would have gone, ah, no, we'll go, you know, we'll go pink and whatever. Yeah. But in this case, you can't get pink because you don't actually pink is illegal and yellow has got this issue and that. Okay, we're going to have to settle for red. Shit, red is not the best. I know, but it's the best out of the, yeah, out know, of the bunch. I always say to people, you know, leadership or at that scale, you know, I felt always that leadership at that scale wasn't necessarily, you know, picking between good and bad. It's always picking between bad and worse, <laughs> right? And, and and that's hard to do. Yeah. People tend yeah. to think, oh, but you, you know, you're the CEO, whatever, you're the executive director, you can make decisions. And he's like, yeah, I wish it was as easy as, oh, that's a good one, there's a bad one, that's easy. Mm. Fuck. No. I don't think I've ever experienced that. It's always, fuck, that's shit, she wouldn't really hear. Oh, fuck, that's not good. Okay, maybe try that. Okay, well, you know, and it's always a tension in between how do you manage you know, because all the good stuff doesn't get decided. It just kind of happens. You know mm. what I mean? It's not it's as if you're involved on, hey, should we go and make more money or more, more money? Fuck, make more, more, more. Like, I don't know, go. Yeah. <laughs> because every decision. one of those decisions as well are impacting lives and they're yeah. impacting. And so the, the weight of that, it's yeah. like, and, and as well as their, um, not everybody, and, and this is the same, doesn't matter if you're a freelancer working for a client or if you're you know, in a big company, these decisions that you make, um, a lot of the times are going to hurt somebody's feelings, I guess is the easiest way to put it, yeah. regardless if they can see the bigger picture or not. And a lot of the time when you're working in the business, you're going, well, but I just spent three months on that and it's going nowhere. Like, yeah, I know, but man, you're still going to get paid. It's still going to happen. It's still yeah. going to be fine. And it's the same with the freelancer and you, when you're working for a client and you've just busted your balls over, you know, three weeks of all-nighters for a, a, an identity or a design or a logo yeah. and they decided that, oh, they're changing the name or the colours, <laughs> uh, you know, it's the same thing and it's not everybody has the ability to kind of take that big inhale and go, okay, it's, it's okay, it's, it's okay. business, let's mm. figure it out. It's not personal but sometimes it's really, really hard to to go, to be rational Definitely. and to go, yeah. Oh, no, I had, right. I had a real clarity from, from day dot. I don't know how this happened. I think it's partly because... Growing up in, in in Argentina, in Patagonia, down the bottom, and growing up in a country where, you know, I would regularly hear my parents talk about making it to the end of the month, you know, like just mm. making it, or no, we can't do it this month, we have to do it next, or no, we can't afford that right now. Or For me, having a job, and to me it was a, a gift, you know, a, a, an absolute privilege, a... I never had it as an expectation. It never occurred to me that anyone owed me anything. It's mm. like, wow, I'm so happy and so lucky that you guys chose me, even if it was for a year until I got fired. Wow, thank you. Appreciate it. And yeah. let's hope I can get another job. And if I don't, well, no. And so to me, having that mindset and then also having the mindset that no one will take care of you except yourself. Mm. No one will take care of you except yourself, right? So having that mindset means that when something does happen, you know, a business kills your project, kills the freelance work that you do, or kills the role that you have in a company, it, you, you pack up and you go, okay, done, yeah. next, right? What am I doing next? And because it was on you and because you were obviously, hopefully, watching out for yourself and for your career and for your future, you should have your next thing kind of lined up in some way. Yeah. Right? You should the- never get caught in a situation where, all your eggs are in that three-month project. Yeah. That all of a sudden, if it cans, you go on, oh, what now? I put all my, you know, well, yeah, careful. Careful, very, mm. yeah. Mm. Maybe it's the um, the environmental factors there as well. You know, growing up in Patagonia, the instability of, of a variety of mm. things between political and- Economical, lo- Yeah, mm. the whole thing, the instability there has forced a state of- Hang on, I, nothing's the world doesn't owe me shit. Correct. I got to fight for it. Yeah, and even if I fight for it and win, well, something else can come and just Correct. wipe that all clear. And I think maybe the more I don't know if you've noticed a similar thing with a lot of you know we work with so many different people, and I've noticed that the more protected somebody might have been in there, you can you can always tell if somebody's had like a very protective, almost privileged upbringing. Mm that when you start talking about change or things going another way or there's something being axed or just that's a shit idea or whatever it is, 
they're definitely less adaptable. I would I'd say not all the time, but a lot of the time that I've gone, oh, interesting. Huh, you don't like change there because it's been easy and, and the foundation's been rock solid for so long. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really tricky. Last week when I was in Sydney and I met with, um, I did a keynote up there for that, for o-, o Cosmetics, that company, mm-hmm. we're talking about how do you gain clarity how do you and so you gain clarity through your whole career and and going you know the world doesn't know me shit i gain gain clarity through you know the shark attack Mm. and you know heaps of businesses and and just kind of going it's going to be all right don't worry about it don't leave anything on the table but how do you try to embed that into other people without going huh this is what you have to do you need to move to a you know, unstable part of the world, live there, realize that, you know, it's really lucky yeah, yeah. or go get yourself in a shit situation. No, it, it, it's a really interesting question. Can this be done by design? Yeah. I, it, it's That's a, the billion dollar question. It's a puzzle. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent and I guess to a certain degree I am designing for my kids um, an environment in which they're learning those skills, right? Mm. It, it, despite the fact that my children have way more access and way more opportunities and almost a lack of nothing. I mean, there's nothing they're missing out on mm. that I can think of. I mean, literally yeah. every time my kids say, oh, I need a new pair of shoes, they get it, right? Mm. Where I grew up going, mom, I need a new pair of shoes. Yeah, good fucking luck, you know, next month <laughs> if we get the money, right? Okay, yeah. I'll go with the whole to school. You know, that was it, yeah. that was, that's how I grew up. Um, but I think the important bit, the way I think about it is, you know, if you think of it as a, um, as a, as a ladder or a pyramid, I mean, however you want to think, visualize it. But the point is I grew up in a space and in a context in which there was things that I was missing out and I've learned to make those the, uh, the foundations of my attitude, right? I'm missing these things. I don't have that, but I do have these. Let's value what I've got hmm. and let's have an attitude where no one owes me shit, right? Yeah. My children are perhaps a few levels up above from that, right? But mm. there's still things they're missing. If I compare them with, I don't know, yeah. royalty, uh, fuck, yeah. royalty gets shit that my kids don't get, right? And they're never going to get or they're not going to be able to do. Or my son says, oh my God, I'd love to see Messi. Let's go and see him next week. Well, hang on, dude, wait. We're yeah. planning a trip to Barcelona. It might just not happen next week because he's not, like yeah. I can't just drop out of nowhere and, you know, because I still got responsibilities, this and that. If mm. I wasn't doing anything and I was royalty, well, maybe I have other responsibilities. <laughs> should have to and shake hands and do other stuff. But yeah. point is, there's still things that are missing. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to make a point of those. Yeah. And depending on where you are in society, you still have things that you don't have or things that will shape your attitude towards no one owes you anything, work your ass off, make sure that, you know, you're yeah. thankful and attentive to the things that you do have, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I'll do the same now. And I think by design, you can create some of that, but you need to be very conscious of it. Yeah. You can't just let it happen. You have to kind of, because if you let it just happen, society will carry you through. And then, yeah, you're right. 20 years on in your career, something changes and you go on. Holy shit. Holy shit. What? Yeah. He's like, well, dude, you just. I think it's maybe perspective comes to mind. Yeah. Like trying by design what you're trying, what you are not trying, what you are doing with, with your kids is giving them an, a balanced perspective between, hey, this is what it can be like. This is what it's like for you. Don't ever, you know, be too spoiled or privileged, all that sort of stuff, because, you know, all you do a heap of travel with the family and it's not mm. too, you know, five star luxury resorts where, you know, you know, you're hanging out, you know, yeah, getting yeah. coconuts by the pool. <laughs> you know, there's times where, yeah, sure, let's stop and we'll, we'll do that sort of experience. But there's also the, hey, we're going to be hiking in this, you know, wherever it is around the world yeah. and we're stopping off and we're going, you're going to Borneo this year. And yeah. again, it's going to, you're going to be teaching that perspective and drawing it back through, I guess, the, you know, education of the kids in a non traditional environment. An example of that, Jody, was, um, Last week, my um, my eldest is joined a, a program for ten weeks where they learn to uh, the, the the basics, yeah, basic the basics of gridiron. He loves NFL mm-hmm. and loves gridiron, and he started to play and you know, joined this little program. And uh, it joins with other two kind of groups of people that are similar, which is NRL and and rugby union. So you know, oh, okay, rugby yeah. league and rugby union. Um, and primarily those environments in Australia are filled with other, um, well, 
it tends to be a lot, at least this particular cohort of people tends to be a lot of, you know, Maori or, or, or New Zealand immigrants that mm. come to Australia and they love them, fanatics of rugby union, fanatics of NRL. Yeah. And it just happens that it's slowly they're starting to become fanatics of gridiron. Yeah. Because it kind of, you know, if yeah. you're big, you're strong, you're muscly, you're genetically blessed like those guys are, shit. Yeah. And play this, here's a fucking ball, run into that person, go. Yeah. <laughs> and they just, so my son <laughs> loves this stuff. Um, and he started that program. And, and it's really fascinating because in the program, there is, you know, physical training, there is, uh, the, the, you know, the tactics and the technical bits of the sport, but there's also mental training. So one of the days mm. they brought uh, a kid that um, never made it into NRL or, or union, but was training with other people that did make it, right? And he was talking about his experience trying to train the young kids. And he was saying, you know, my life was uh, pretty bad because I was training with all those guys, I had all the opportunities, but then I got caught up in girls and I got caught up in drugs and then I missed out on a match and I didn't do very well. And I lost my girlfriend, I was really upset. And then I was even thinking of ending my life, right? And my son, 12 year old, quite young, he stood up and he walked away and went to, you know, get on the roller and the pin and started stretching because uh, he felt that he was a bit maybe out of, his depth, you know, this was perhaps a conversation that he felt that wasn't for him, right? Yeah. Which I really, I, I'm so, him, yeah. oh my God, I'm so Fire impressed. Out. Good on him. Especially been teaching at 12, him. yeah. I've always said to him, you know, we always said to our kids, if you ever feel uncomfortable in whatever way, shape or form, you remove yourself. Mm. Just do it. You're in control. Just, just go. Yeah. It doesn't matter where, who, how, what age, if you are uncomfortable, your body's telling you something, get the hell out of there. Mm. So he did, he felt uncomfortable, so he walked away. But his insight, which was fascinating, was actually... Dad, you know, he was talking about that and he was talking about in his life because he just lost a girlfriend and lost a match. I mean, gosh, we've seen when we've traveled far worse than that to end yeah. your life. Man. You know, and despite the sadness and the empathy you can feel for this kid, of course, I don't know his context or anything like that. Fair enough. Yeah. It could be terrible. But the truth is that my son had a perspective that this other kid didn't have. Mm. And if he did have, Maybe he wouldn't have felt so bad about losing a girlfriend and losing a match. Because my son was going, dude, you lost the match, you lost your girlfriend. You'll be fine. Fucking big deal. Just come on, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Do it again, right? Mm. Where if you said, no, I lost, you know, I don't have food this morning, like my son is seen people, or I don't have a shelter, I don't even know where to gonna sleep tonight, which we've seen those people and we've talked to them and we've sat down with those people. Yeah. Even by age 12, he's already done it. Mm. He's already got in his mind life can be fucking way worse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I almost lost my life in a shark attack. Holy fuck. Okay. Perspective. Yeah. Versus yeah, yeah, yeah. I lost my girlfriend. Dude. You'll be okay. Chill. It's yeah. okay. But it's amazing that, yeah, that he has that, like he said, that the perspective, but also that willpower to, to kind of walk away, reflect and go, oh man, geez. And then to, to recognize that in, in that other person who no doubtably you know, he's sharing the, his experience. And for him, it was, it would have been shit. And yeah, he, you great. know, well, for, whatever, for him, but then to, to realize that, that the resilient side of the fence there, you know, your son had way more resilience already built up in him to recognize that situation and go, huh, man, I, it's not that bad. Yeah. Like we've, we've got this, which is, which is correct. I remember I started, oh, I started teaching the kids perspective yeah. um, with crying. Huh. So I used to teach my, I still teach them today. I used to say to them, I love you crying. I think it's critical that you cry, mm. but you need to always remember you need to cry for the right reasons. So I would tell them, so they'd be in tears, like arguing with me and I'd be going, is it worth crying for lollies or is it worth crying because daddy is in pain or because you've hurt yourself or because you, teddy, yeah. your teddy got hurt or you lost your teddy? No, no, lost, losing my teddy is, is more important than the lollies. Good. Mm. If you lose mm. your teddy, we cry together. Yeah. If you don't get the lollies, uh-uh, can't cry for that, right? So if your best friend gets hurt, we cry. If you get hurt, we cry. Yeah. If you can't eat lollies, we don't cry. If you can't get the toy that you want, we don't cry. So it was always like, yeah, the boy who cried wolf, right? Yeah, can, yeah. like make sure you cry for the right reason. I love you crying yeah. for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, if it's anything to do with your emotions, you're feeling upset about important things. So it was always about importance. How important is this compared to this? Oh, it's not that important. Okay, good. Stop it. Yeah. Okay. It's just, it's just yeah. that I want the money. Like, nah. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Um, Talking about resilience, uh, we were at the tennis all last week and the week before that, the oh. Australian Open, which yep. um, I must admit, that was pretty epic going down there with you. We've been doing a heap of work um, with 
gig in tennis Australia and, and stuff down there. And you've been spending a heap of time there. Yeah, I spent there. I was and, like, I geeked out completely. I, I know. I was just going to say, <laughs> on Friday when I went down with you, you were a kid in a candy store. I, I, <laughs> I just had to let you go. I, I, you were just having the best time. Oh, my God. I had to, like, literally restrain myself from oh. jumping on tennis players and telling them, yeah. oh, my God, I watched you when I was a young kid. Yeah. Oh, far right. It was pretty – I can't believe um, what you told me that – Australian Open being non-for-profit. Yeah, that was, I mean, for some reason it's been in my radar, but I've, it, I never just joined the dots, you know. It's yeah. kind of like, um, and I think the the powerful, and I don't know if it was by design or not, I don't know if this the, this happened this way or, or who was involved or how this happens, but Tennis Australia is, is, is you know, the Australian Open is a non-for-profit, you know, uh, structure which allows you to, you know, whatever you, you know, you earn, I guess you pour back into the very business yeah. of, you know, what you're trying mm. to achieve, which I think it's, um, it's fascinating. That, and hence the reason why all the players, every time there is a, you know, commentary at the end, they say, this is the best tournament in the world. Mm. And they're kind of careful. They don't want to, you know, piece of Wimbledon or anybody else, you know, but, but they, you, they kind of say, well, yeah, you don't get this anywhere else on earth. I mean, these guys have the yeah. most insane facilities. Well, we, we were lucky enough to, kind of walk around you spend a lot more time there than uh, me like i said but the spaces that that i saw you know with you cruising around man that they, they don't go without hey no not and at it, all and it's beyond just things right it's not just the players have the best smoothies and or the yeah, food and massages and, that. Yeah, yeah best facilities in the world best whatever yeah cool but it was also the like where they get dropped off it's out of the public eye you don't have to walk through crowds it All was, that stuff, including, for example, another thing that I learned that fascinated me, at the expense of the organization, because the organization needs often its CEO to be able to make decisions, he basically spends most of the two weeks talking to players. Hmm. It's kind of like a, a, an open door policy where he goes, if you need me, you come talk to me. Yeah. Uh, and well, that means that he's never available for anything else, right? He's always yeah. like running around. But he he has his finger on the pulse. He knows what the players need, uh, which are the stars of the show, I guess. I mean, think the about show. it. Everything surrounds around that. If the players can put a good match on. Yeah, if they're not happy. If they're not happy, then there's no tournament, well, right? It's funny you said that because I noticed I was watching um, Novak shred Nadal yeah, no, <laughs> in sad. the final, which is sad. We were both saying just before that, um, oh, man, I think he was just rattled off of that first set. I know, what a bummer. There was something he said, I don't know what I mean. But I noticed in the presentations at the end when uh, uh, Novak went up to, to Craig, the CEO of Tennis Australia. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the way that they interacted. It wasn't a thank you so much, you know, a very corporate handshake, see you later. It was like two mates. Yeah, yeah, like, basically they were saying, go around here, yeah, do this, Yeah, go around whatever. here, can you, can you do this? And you could, I saw it, I was like, man, they're just hanging out. Like it was just two friends. Oh, yeah, no worries. Yep, yeah, cool. Look, I can't claim that I know much more than just that. I mean, it's yeah. only been two weeks that I was involved and very kind of very brief exposure to it. Mm. Um, but, um, but but you can see it in the result. I mean, it's not that hard to to figure it out, right? The results are obvious. Yeah. The event is amazing. These guys have gone far beyond just the sport itself and into – how do you gather close to a million people over a period of two weeks and yeah. entertain them? Yeah. Entertain them from a sporting perspective, from a music perspective, from a food perspective, from a, you know, every sense is, you know, you, you walk in there and you can spend an entire day and not see a single match of tennis. Well, I must admit, that's me. Oh, uh, did you hear? I still yeah. walk out and go, what a rad day. It was awesome. Like, yeah. <laughs> Point out, like I didn't, like there was, I went, I probably spent three or four days down there um, kind of spectating. Yeah. And um, it was, I actually only watched one game, which yeah. was just Dylan, Dylan Orcott's final. Yeah. He was nice enough to fly some tickets to yeah. Madison and I. And it was epic to watch him win. And, and it was actually the first time I've actually been inside Rod Laver. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> because the rest of the time, it's, I've just been, you know, grabbing beers and chatting to friends and, and watching it on a screen somewhere, which I, I must admit I could just do it at home. Yeah. But then afterwards, you're watching, you know, flight facilities or Craig David or all these massive bands. And down at, I, I was looking at, um, oh, we went down to watch Craig David on that Friday night. Yeah. Oh, after we were down there, I yeah, kind of kicked on. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it would have been 90% of the people in the crowd there watching Craig David were there for that, not for the tennis. Yeah, like yeah, just yeah. looking around. They were there. They just rocked up to, to watch these, to watch the music, have a dance, and then probably kick on somewhere else. And it was amazing to go, huh, this is a, tennis this is a grand slam 
and there's yeah, people interacting there's, with yeah, it. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's a bit counterintuitive, right? The yeah. thought, think about it. You know, a purist this Grand Slam tennis tournament will go, this is all about tennis. Well, mm. Why else would we do anything else but tennis? But I think the the the, the cleverness, the insightfulness from this team uh, is that if you can associate tennis with any other epic experience and all of a sudden mm. then in your mind, tennis associated with also music as well as great food and, you know, yeah. drink with my mates or whatever it is that yeah. you're kind of associating, everything gets augmented, right? So the music augments the tennis, the tennis augments the music, but, you know, and all of a sudden the entire experience becomes, this way more, you know, more is more, right? This is For sure. epic. Like, yeah. Well, I'm that person. I'm that person. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, Madison's always loved tennis and, you know, she would want to go watch and we've been to the Hopman Cup a couple of times in Perth and, and a couple of things, but I, I would, honestly would go against my will and just go, oh, fuck, oh yeah, whatever, but we'll go down and watch. And I'd never really got into it. Yeah. But after, you know, the last two years of going to AO and having the, I guess, the sideline experiences of the bands, the music, everything else except for the game, then when the final was on, it was like, shh, I'm watching the final. Yeah. I want to watch this now because I get it and I don't associate tennis with like, oh, what a boring sport. Yeah, that's right. Now so instead like, of being, that's right, instead yeah. of being less, it's actually more. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Well, I mean, I took my kids a couple of the days and, um, yeah, I think we watched – my six-year-old lasted four games yeah, out of a match live. Out. I think it was four games. That's it. The rest of the, the other six hours, so four games would have been like, whatever, 25 minutes, not even. Mm. The other six hours, we were in a giant slide that they put <laughs> up and we were doing ninja something climbing. We were playing go-karts. We were doing hot shots. We had mini tennis, you know, yeah. we, it was just a, 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 a playground of, of experiences for them. You know, yeah. we had beautiful dumplings and we, I mean, yeah. the, the food at some point in time would be a bit exy. Could be, there could be some in Polish stuff there, but, uh, but no, it was great. Yeah, so really good. good. And um, yeah, Dylan won, which was, which is epic friend yeah. of ours. He you know, won the uh, wheelchair quad. Is that the quad wheelchair? Yeah, I think singles final. Singles I, 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 I think, think that's, that's what, I think that's what it was called. Division, I'm not yeah. too sure. But it smashed it. It was so good. And he also won doubles, which was huge. We'll have to um, convince him to come on here for a chat so we can wind him up. Wind him up. Um, Get to talk about his, uh, yeah, yeah, his trophies. Everything and, else. I think that's five grand, five. That's five AO. Aussie Open, yeah. And then he won US Open this year well, as well. And, open. But on top of that, um, it was the first time that wheelchair um, – finals was televised correct which was just amazing and 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 so so good to see the diversity in sport and the equality in sport mm. moving away from typical it's the dudes playing the final with the big money and all and you know all that sort yeah. of stuff and and AO kind of leading the way there they were the first grand slam to have equal prize money for <laughs> male and female and, and I think everybody has has followed now, and now to to broadcast to millions of people the final of of the wheelchair, that's huge. Yeah, yeah it's huge. so huge. Now these guys are definitely pushing the the boundaries. So I mean, that's I think further than just tennis Australia thing. So oh, that's Channel Nine. I, I think also Channel Nine was involved. Nine and Sports. was involved. Yeah. And whatever. But yeah. I think whoever was involved, I think is fantastic, and so I think good. they're doing a great job for. I mean, and Dylan is doing, leading the way. He's, yeah. he's, you know, pushing through and punching through ceilings that yeah. often were not there. I mean, my kids, you know, I mean, they've met Dylan before and I think that's partly yeah. helps, I guess. But, um, but you know, they they love watching his ads. They yeah. The final was on on telly there because we couldn't go because we were moving houses. And, you know, they were watching, they literally watched the match on telly. Yeah. They watch Dylan play on tennis and they were laughing at, you yeah. know, every time he goes doof or they love his, <laughs> they love his sunnies oh. or they talk about he just did doof. Yeah. <laughs> now they sing songs in doof. Oh. So they go doof, 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 doof. Oh, they sing classy. doof songs like Dylan. Man. Well, in the crowd, man, there was kids with big signs that they'd made, go Dylan. There was um, a super, super diverse audience all the way through to just Triple J, listeners and lovers from when, you know, mm. breakfast on Triple J, which was, which was so sick. Hey, on the same topic, um, we've been complaining about our so sore knees yeah. <laughs> today. Yeah. Um, and you're a bit of a cross cross freak. Cross freak. Cross freak. <laughs> How um, I'm trying to get back into the spirit of things after a 
bit of a blowout of summer. Yeah. Um, we talked about this blowout. The blowout. I didn't quite blow it. I had a I massive, held, I've I been hungover on. for two months now. <laughs> I held on. So I wanted to talk about um, exercise, the brain, and more the motivation. Like you find most days, nearly every day, mm. time. Is that now habit and you need it? Or do you still have days when you go, I really don't feel like doing this, but. Yeah, it's it, it weird. These days, these days, if I don't train, I don't, I don't know at what point then you pushed it too much, right? But these days, if I don't train, I feel guilty the other way around. It's, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's gone the other way. If I don't train, I go, oh my God, I didn't train today. I should have trained, right? Uh, it's, it's hard for me to truly go, I'm not going to do anything at all and I'm going to be okay and at peace with not doing anything. Often, every day, it pops into my head. And that's when you create a strong habit, right? You create. Mm. It's the same as feeling guilty for not doing your, you know, your teeth at night. Yeah, you got to get out of bed, man, if that you happens. you got to get out of bed. If you're in bed and the thought crosses your mind and you haven't done my teeth, fuck, I thought about it now. I have to do my teeth. I have to do it, yeah. Nah, but I'm, I'm comfy, I'm, I'm warm, I'm good. It's mm. not... I know, fuck, I thought I need to, so you, yeah. you get up and you go and do it because you can't bear the guilt in a way, right? Yeah. Because it's so ingrained now, the habit is so powerful, right? And it's the habit has been built through repetition, it's been built through, you know, advertising, through, you know, health and through all sorts of things, right? Mm. But all of a sudden, if you don't do them, you feel that something went wrong, right? Yeah. And if you are for whatever reason traveling or camping or whatever and you just don't have access to and you don't do them, Fuck, it feels shit in the morning. You wake up and you're going, oh, I'm not, I haven't done my teeth. And if like, yeah. there's something wrong. Yeah, you know, you're in trying your to life. brush your teeth with your finger. Yeah, you yeah. Anything to get that reward. going on. You know what I mean? Mm. Like you need that kick in some way. So I've managed to, in the last four years, create a habit of my for myself of fitness health that gives me the same kind of reward when I do it and punishment when I don't. Uh-huh. Exactly the same. So mm. today I woke up, 9.30, my wife was, because she's a CrossFit coach, she went to, you know, to train. I had a meeting at 10, which meant I missed that class. And I was already going, I was already feeling guilty the moment I woke up and going, fuck, I'm going to miss that. Okay, I'm going to have to try to get there at 4.30. She's 4.30, need to move the house. Okay, I'm going to see if I can, you know. So I'm already mm-hmm. carrying my mind, money. Scheming, scheming, When am I yeah. going to do it? I'm camping. I'm in my van. I'm in fucking back end of Cooper Pity and I'm waking up in the morning going, all right, I think I'll do a quick workout. I'll do 20 push-ups, 20 th- and I'm yeah, already yeah, yeah, yeah. planning a what beating time during the day I'm going to stop for even 20 minutes mm. just to punch out a, a workout. I think, you know, and like I said, I've managed to build a habit. Before that, I've never had that. I was fit enough for my life because I've always been very sporty. You know, I would be the typical person that runs maybe two or three times a week or, you know, goes to the gym, the typical gym guy that, you know, turns up, mm. does, oh, you know, chest these days, back these days, you know, legs this day kind of thing. Um, and when I discovered CrossFit, I I discovered more than anything the the importance of turning up. Mm. And, you know, and, and I that was – that was a beautiful, I don't even know if well, this person realized he said that, but I got injured and I said to him, oh, no, dude, I hurt my, I can't remember what it was then. I think I hurt my wrist. So I'm not going to be able to come across it. He goes, you hurt your wrist. You can still do your legs and you can do this and you can do that. Oh, fair point. It's just, you know, used to normally if you get hurt, you don't do it. And he looked at me and he said, mate, the hardest bit on coming to CrossFit is not yeah. the exercise, mm. it's turning up. For sure. Huh. That's funny because CrossFit essentially taking functional movements and this is looking at it as a business and as something more than just an exercise yeah it's it's using the the typical movements that you're going to do solo in the gym but doing it in a group environment yeah. and so therefore it starts that accountability factor of oh, i've got to go see johnny or abdul or mary or you know whoever yeah whoever it is that's pretty genius and then having the accountability factor for yourself well you can still rock up yeah know, just just come and because then in your mind you're still going, oh, it's always good to, you know, high-five everyone and, and you know, get excited. Support about it. No, and- look, I think if we're going to talk about I mean, no, the CrossFit is not for everyone. There's, you know, there's, oh, but of the- course, there's love and hate, like everything yeah. else, gosh. Um, and they haven't reinvented anything specifically to do with the actual movements. I mean, mm. the, the push-up is a push-up, a chin-up is a chin-up, yeah. lifting weights, lifting weights. There doesn't mean anything different. But I always, you know, I think we've spoken about this shortly before, the, the, the business genius, and I don't know if, again, this was, entirely master planned or it kind of evolved in this way 
But there's a few little pieces of CrossFit that you have to, you know, take your hat off and go, Fuck, good, job. good job. Good job. Well done. I mean, yeah. the whole ranking of the entire world, being able That's to compare yourself. When the CrossFit Open, in fact, is in a couple of weeks or next week, it opens up, which I'll do. Um, it opens up to the whole world. The entire world, if they want, can turn up to the finals in whenever it is with the best yeah. CrossFit in the world. It's open. Do it. Here's five exercises over five weeks. If you get the times, you move to the next level. You're in. If you get the times, you move to the next level. There's not even a, no, but to become pro, you need to be able to. No, you no. just you just have to do these movements. Do the movement. Do, do it at that speed. And be in the top. And you're in. Certain percentile. And that thought, that thought of saying everyone is in and everyone is ranked means that oh. you can look in an app and see your name, you know, 12,144 out of 22,600, you know, and you look at the number one and you look at yourself and you look at the distance yeah, and shit. it's fascinating. You tell me another sport on earth yeah, you that you can actually rank yourself. There is none. There's nothing. There's nothing that you can go, oh, but Federer is number one and I am 10,008. No. no, I'm nothing. I'm not even, a, no. I can't even compete. Where in this you can. Yeah. Pull the app. Man, I'll, the thing, do geez, the exercise. you just got me like, imagine doing that for design. So oh. a brief goes out to any designer in the whole world and you re- reply. There's probably these things probably exist. I know Behance and a whole lot of websites yeah. do those open briefs. But that would be pretty epic to then be able to see, oh, geez, that was way better than mine. It's hard because that's um, so it, subjective. It's subjective. This yeah. is Well, this is the beauty of what they've done with CrossFit is that they've really made it, you know, a, a measured sport. Then the whole, of course, what you just said before, the concept of, rocking up, not knowing what's happening that day, basically having a team to support you through it um, mm. and so on. I've managed to now been doing it for long enough that I often fall outside the team thing because I have to do it at times where the class is not on. Yeah. So I often do it on my own, but, um, but it doesn't change anything. I mean, the concept of- But it's still, hang on, it's still, you're still going to be doing the same workout of the day or wad that everyone else correct. is most and, of the time. Compare. So then you go home correct. and yeah, how do you And go? I send them a text or I go, you yeah. know, they do it at, at the gym and I did it in- And that in motivation, the, if in, you go second- in that hotel somewhere. Yeah, if you go I, second, uh, you need to beat them, hey. Yeah, yeah well, I tell them, well, I tell them, hey, you guys did it today. Oh, and I put excuse, you know, I'll say things like, Oh, but my royal wasn't as good as one of the gym or whatever, right? And we talk yeah, about it, yeah. but it, it, it always puts. No, no, look, keeping fit, I think, and from a mindset, I mean, you were talking about what it does to me. I always find that uh, I've struggled with meditation, mm. you know, uh, and knowing full well that there's enough evidence about meditation being fantastic for you and for your brain and mm. for your daily work and, and for balance, et cetera. But I've struggled, I must admit, I probably didn't give it enough of a shot. But the few times that I gave it a shot, it kind of like frustrated me. I'm going, I can't do this, this is killing me. But my way of meditation is when my brain can only think of the next rep. And, the, and a singular thing. That's that's where I switch off. You know, mm. So I find that doing CrossFit is one of those things where the first 15, 20 minutes of warm up and bits and pieces are really social. You chat to everyone. My mind is still on, of course. I'm keeping around the phone in some way or whatever. Yeah. But then the moment the word, you know, the work of the day starts and I've got 15 minutes to smash out as many of blah as it is, for those 15 minutes, like, it's like everything stops. Yeah. Like my brain stops and all my brain can think of is, fuck, like, how am I going to get another rep out of this? You know? Does, do you have that same experience surfing? Surfing, same thing. It's, yeah, we spoke about that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like for, the next wave. Yeah. See, I am mad to, she'll piss herself with this, but- I love meditation. I try to meditate as often as possible and I go through waves of it will be every morning and that I'll do it, you know, just a 20 minute guided meditation on the couch here and, and I get heaps and heaps out of it. And then I just fall out of it for, for months and get back into it. But I must admit it, it did take me a solid kind of month of sticking at meditation, listening to the same thing ignoring the twitches in your body, getting through it and learning the, uh, the process essentially is all it is. And then once I got through that, it was, it was great. And I use it as a time to, to just be still and, 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 and go away from everything. But man, sometimes if you've got too much shit on, I can't turn off either. It's, yeah. But I'm I mean, just, but this is the skill. I mean, yeah. George, we've read enough evidence and the, yeah. the world has spoken basically yeah it's, it's good it's, shit for us it's not up for debate it's just that i don't know it, it is i mean like anything it's hard I, I think i think i've done a disservice for myself when i convince myself that while my body can why would i not 
meditate physically, if you will, like crossfeeding yeah. or surfing, like I'm meditating in an action rather than in a quiet spot. Yeah. I'm, I guess the reason why I've done a disservice is because I'm underestimating entirely that when you're sitting still with your body, your mind is not still, right? You are actually no. exercising your mind. For sure. And that is just as important, mm. just as important as exercising your, you know, your quads, your yeah. whatever. It yeah. doesn't matter. So, um, but yeah, maybe we well, we should challenge each other to do a, we'll a, do a meditation a, off. We'll do a 90 day. We'll do and Make it a habit. Yeah. See if we can do it. And then every morning we have to text each other going, did you do it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah did you do it? No. Shit. I'm number four meditator. I had this idea. I had this <laughs> Put idea. it on a ladder. Who's the best meditator? I had this idea once that uh, the way to keep accountability, and I think a company eventually did it, um, but they did it by making money themselves, which my idea was a bit different, was um, literally every time you do it, I'll pay you, and every time I do it, you pay me back, right? Uh, so basically, uh -huh. if we both do it that day, we're on zero. zero. But if on that day I didn't do it, fuck, I have to give 50 bucks, right? Yeah. And if the next day you do it and I do it, you're 50 bucks ahead. And if yeah. I fail again, you're a hundred bucks ahead all of a sudden, right? So I could be losing a shitload of money by the end of the year, unless Shit. you fail on me and I make the money back, right? And we'll see where we end up at the end of the year. But the idea was to make it big enough that it was like, it'll hurt, oh, right? Oh shit, I got to do I it. I did it this morning. Fuck, it goes 500 bucks. Shit, that's- I got to do it now. Shit, that's a bit of money. I could buy myself, you know, a nice new whatever. pair of earphones or I don't know, whatever, yeah, yeah. right? Man, so just um, before we jump off exercise, do you find, and this is more of a selfish question for me, I find if I don't do something physically, mentally, I'm cloudy. So if I don't go and, and work out, if I don't, don't go even for a little run or, or just get the body moving, if I do that in the morning, my mental um, endurance and mental clarity is way uh, stronger than if I just get up and have that lazy cruise around. Do you have the same same thing? And that's one of the draw cards to bring it back to keep the mind sharp. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't know. I mean, I've read enough here and there, bits and pieces on, on the physical uh, responses to exercise. Mm. I guess to do with oxygenation and stress to the cell. You know, blah blah blah, all those things. So that. Obviously, there is a physical factor to the fact that you make your blood flow and your heart rate mm. go up. That helps you in, you know, sharpness and, you know, et cetera. So I think there is enough evidence of that to tell that, yeah, you know, mm. and, and I've noticed it without the signs behind. Same yeah, as you. Same. I go and do a bit of exercise, I come back and you feel alive. You know, you yeah, feel like, wow, that was good. Yeah. Great, let's go, right? Smash it. Mm. You feel your body is not... You know, it's, it's far more mobile, you're stretchy, you're bendier, you feel, you know, you feel good. Mm. Um, but I think there's also a factor for me now that adds to it, which is the whole factor of habit. I feel that if I haven't done it, it's something that I didn't tick off the list that day. And therefore mm. that stress sits in the front of my mind, reminding me that I failed at something today. Guilt. And that I yeah. failed that... I you didn't feel complete guilty, right? something. I feel guilty. And that guilt clouds you. Mm. So if I tick the box earlier or if I get it out of the way, then or, all of a sudden- Or you know it's booked in. Oh, it's booked in and yeah. you know it's in the afternoon at 5.30 I'm going, it's it's done, you know, yeah. and, it, and it makes me relax for the day because I'm going, no, no, that's all sorted. Yeah. It's all good. Well, I've got those um, Olympic rings here now yeah, I can see that them. I hang over here. They look good. Yeah. Oh, you got the- Yeah, yeah got so the, I've got a bar outside- and, that's a um, right height too. Dude, it's perfect. It's so perfect. How's your muscle up gone? No, I'm not there yet. <laughs> okay. I've give, I must admit I've given it a crack. <laughs> My first thing. <laughs> um, but I try to do now in the morning, get up early, and it's not a big workout. Like I try to have, you know, when my knee's not, you know, being 80 years old on me, it's I just get up and do it. It's almost like 10 minutes and just a couple of it, movements. It doesn't have to be a massive correct. thing. It's, it's remarkable how little. Get in the shower. I end on a cold shower and then I'm like, I'm ready to smash the day. And then it's like bonus if I get a run in. If I get mm. a run in the afternoon, if it's not super hot or, you know, I don't have, you know, sore broken the hardest shins is turning up. The hardest yeah. bit is turning up. It's what I'm yeah. teaching my kids. It is. Hardest bit is turning up. Yeah. Just the same with networking. Yeah. Hardest thing is turning thing. up. Yeah. Put your hand down. And once you've learned the... The, that's that's the thing. The habit is not the push-up. The habit is turning up. Yeah. Turn up. Make sure that yeah. every day, even if it's 10 minutes, turn up. Mm. Turn up just means turn up to your backyard, right? doesn't matter where you're fucking turning up. Just yeah. do it. Make your mind go, it is now exercise time for 10 minutes. Well, it's do just, it. yeah, if, I think it's almost better if it's your backyard. When you realize that, especially with exercise, when you realize 
that it doesn't have to be at a place with a subscription with a any yeah, yeah. like I've never been the gym kind of person because I'm like you know it drives me nuts if I go when I drive past a gym and there's people on treadmills yeah it's like fucking run Go on the run. street That's like so what cool. are you, you're missing the best part of running yeah. you know I'll, I'll run on a treadmill if it's in a hotel, hotel gotta go whatever, you, yeah. and you're just gonna get done but it's not the top of my favorite things to do when it comes to running it's yeah. gonna be out there on a trail in the bush you know that sort of thing but you don't have to put those barriers in front of you of oh i gotta pay for a gym membership or sign up to a group no, and the no, time no. that group's only man you've got two arms two legs um, or a variation of, yeah. do some movements, simple, whatever it is. Make your heart rate go up a little bit and That's it. sweat a little bit and you'll be good. Yeah. I um, No, no, I do, you know, and the kids love it because they see me, you know, at 6.30, <laughs> dinner is served at 7.15, let's say, I go 45 minutes and I go, right, do the next time. Who's, who's doing it well with me? You know, and I'll just be in the kitchen and, you know, well, <laughs> you know, passion is, is whatever, doing something, yeah. then is cooking, I'll be, you know, on the floor doing this crazy push-up that I saw someone on Instagram do yeah. and I'm doing those and then I'm whatever, <laughs> doing some handstands and, you know, anything. And, and it's just, even if it was 50 minutes of nothing too serious, yeah. I feel I've ticked the box and That's I've done it. a bit of movement and my body felt it. And Man, I think that mindset falls over, you know, when you take it outside, you can learn that mindset and the habit and the, um, I guess the, learning that guilt, like yeah. learning how to deal with the guilt, will then apply it directly back into a business life or a corporate life, which is show up, do the work. It feels good. Don't put it off. If something's in front of you, just do it. You got a list, pick one, do yeah. that task. And it's that same mindset that, that falls over that if you can continue to uh, see what needs to be done and not postpone it and do it because you know that the reward is you know, mental clarity or feeling better or getting one step closer to a destination, then you're less likely to to fall into that fixed mindset of fuck and everything's so shit, everything's so hard. No, it's not. Just get it done. Uh, just show start. up. Just do it. I know it's going to be hard to start with, but just like running, you know, it's, you run around the block and then it'll be two blocks, then a K and then five, and then all of a sudden you can you know, do whatever you like. Huh. You've just got to do it. It's it's start, for, yeah. it's starting a habit. It's you getting just start it done. as small as you can. Yeah. Get started. I would say to people, yeah, wake up, whatever, just before you have a coffee, do 10 push-ups. Simple. That's yeah. it. Then yeah. the next day, do yeah. 11. Then a week later, do 15. I don't know. Well, that's how I do mine, man. I chuck the kettle on and then I go do my kind of 10 minutes of you know, playing my little play around in the backyard. You, do you stick your landings or you don't do any landings? <laughs> Probably I did my knee. <laughs> oh, you can't do landings. Yeah. Does Mads give you the little score? Yeah. The score. Seven, seven out of 10. Jimmy, give me fours. Jimmy, <laughs> like, good luck, champ. Um, but by the time the kettle's boiled and, uh, you know, I'm ready to go. That's yeah, it. Finished. Dude, that's been um, over an hour. Time flies. Hey. All right. So um, thanks, dude. Thanks for cruising in. I'm sure this isn't going to be the we last podcast. We didn't even touch on we so many other topics. anything. So how about this? Anybody listening out there, I know that you're going to have a million questions for Gus that we didn't even get to. Um, if you send me questions, I'll convince him to come back and I'll ask him. And we'll do them all. We'll do them again. Beautiful. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks, man.